Thank you, Andy. And I just wanted to add also that if anyone's planning to go to Jordan's Golden Shore anytime soon and would like to trip to Israel, I'd go with you. All right? Love to go. Well, tonight we're going to return to our study in the Word of God and just uh, kind of launching out from Matthew 24, talking about the abomination of desolation, what it is and when the abomination of desolation takes place. And this is Matthew 24, 15 to begin with, and we're going to be going back to the book of Daniel, as I promised you uh, the last time we looked at this together. Now, I just want you to know that this is more of a Bible study. I don't want to be preaching at you on this more than just... Uh, helping you to think through a few of these passages tonight and to address this. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I have some concern that there is um, the view that eliminates the potential of the abomination of desolation being in the future at all. And um, it concerns me specifically because of the book of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel is very, very precise as far as its discussion of this topic of the abomination of desolation and I just want to give some, some views that I hold regarding that and, and maybe give you some points to think about as you navigate these things today, especially with our culture. I'm talking about within the Christian culture. And uh, there are so many teachers out there with a variety of different views regarding the eschatological systems that they hold. And so I wanted to let you know specifically where I am on this and what the Lord has taught me, I believe, over the years regarding this topic of the abomination of desolation. I said something Sunday that maybe some of you caught. I don't know if you did. I'm considered a futurist as far as my understanding of eschatology, meaning that I believe a lot of the portions of the Bible that are uh, prophetic in nature, specifically in the New Testament, regard a future event. I'm not saying that none of them have already been fulfilled in the past, but primarily I would take the book of Revelation as being a future prophecy, something that would be fulfilled in the future. And I would take large portions of Matthew 24 and also uh, Mark 13 and Luke 21, which are the parallel passages, to be futuristic. And I'm not saying that there aren't any elements in there that clearly relate to the question that Jesus was asked by his disciples about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. I will talk about that in just a few moments, Lord willing, if we have the time. So if I see this right, and I may be wrong in this, but I, I think I have uh, two more uh, messages on this topic, and you'll probably consider everything that I've said by then, by then to be an abomination because you've had enough of it by that time. But the point is, is that after I get done with that, we're going to go back to uh, Romans chapter 11 and finish up that section of Scripture. And then once we finish that, we're going to change our whole format here. We're going to be in the fellowship hall around tables, hopefully with some good refreshments and Bible studies in there, and uh, give opportunity for you to interact with questions as we move through different topics. And maybe that will even be an opportunity for you to learn even more. Because... One of the things about this context, which I don't mind necessarily, and I'll be very comfortable in it, is it gives me an opportunity to speak to you, but it doesn't give you an opportunity to speak to me or to the leadership or maybe something that you're, you're really struggling with, biblically speaking. And we learn about it one Wednesday night. You say, you know what we're going to do? Next Wednesday night, we're going to come in and address this. We're going to look at what the Word of God says about it and try to work at it that way. And it will give us some more opportunity for fellowship together, to spend some time together. So Matthew chapter 24, hope you got yourself settled there just for a moment. I'll read some of the text and get ourselves uh, situated there. You remember what Jesus said there, picking up in Matthew 24, 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get any clothes. And woe to those who are pregnant in those days and who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter nor on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days were shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign, then it says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Just a quick and hopefully brief review of some of the things we've looked at already. I told you that there are some interpretive anchors you have to hold on to as you work your way through this text. And one of those is the questions that are asked that are in the earlier portion of Matthew 24, where, he, where the disciples ask Jesus after they have walked through the temple in all of its beauty and wonder that Jesus made the statement that this temple is going to be destroyed and there will not be one stone left upon another. And so they asked the question, when will these things be, referring to the temple destruction? And they put the coming of Christ, the presence of Christ, the kingdom rule of Christ together with that event. That was what they would understand the Old Testament to teach. They would think this cataclysmic event of the temple destruction would clearly be something that would usher in the kingdom of Christ and so they put it all together and asked the second question, which was, what will be the sign of your coming? And then they asked a third question, and the end of the age. What's the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Which is clearly eschatological in nature, as I've already told you in the past. That's the first anchor. You've got to know there are three questions being asked here. And in this passage, in Matthew 24 and 25, there are three questions being answered. Not just one, but three. And then... There is also, in the latter portion of Matthew 24, in verse 29, the clear reference to the literal return of Christ. I will not go back over the details of how I show you that these words that are used here by Jesus are repeated by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament letters, specifically First and Second Thessalonians, where he addresses the coming of Christ, and he uses the exact same words. In fact, there's one word, a couple of words, in fact, that are used by Paul that are only used again by Jesus in Matthew 24. And uh, Paul is picking up his eschatology from Jesus. He even says that in Matthew, or rather, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But what does it say in verse 29? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, and he will gather his elect together. He will send out his angels, it says, with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together. That's the word synagogue or to assemble together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This, I believe, to be the return of Christ. This is his coming in the clouds. This is his return to gather his people together. This is his coming not only to, to gather his people but to judge the world for the sin and unrighteousness and unbelief that is there. So we've already established that, that there are those two very important anchors you need to hold on to as you work your way through the text. It's easy to get lost in it and to think that Jesus is only answering one question, but he's not. He's answering three questions, and he, he brackets it by giving us a very clear indicator that he's going to literally come back physically in the clouds to gather together his people. But there is a major sign in this that is very important to the interpretation of this text and it is the statement about the abomination of desolation because that statement that event that will occur is something that causes other things to transpire and Jesus makes note of it he references it and he makes it clear to the people of Israel that are listening to him that day that whenever you see these things, for those in Jerusalem, they need to get out of Dodge. There's coming a time that will be worse than any other time in the history as a result of what follows behind the abomination of desolation. 
So what did we notice, if you remember? What did we notice about that abomination? Well, there's a couple of observations we noticed about it in verse 15. Jesus says, whenever you see it standing there, it will be set in place. This is something that's not temporary, at least it seems. It is sat there in the temple, in the holy place, and it is an abomination that makes the place desolate. And we already looked at that in detail. The word abomination, when used primarily of religious things in the Old Testament, would often refer to idols, uh, idols uh, in the place of worship. And we see this word used in the Word of God a number of times, specifically in the book of Daniel. So he says that the first observation is, is that you will see it. It's visible. It is standing in the holy place. And as a result of this event, not just something standing in the holy place, but as a result of who puts it there, there will be unprecedented tribulation that will come on the people of Israel and eventually the whole world. It is Judeocentric, meaning that it starts right at the holy place and spreads out beyond that to the rest of the world. And it is immediately preceded, it immediately rather precedes the physical bodily return of Jesus Christ. So those things are very important. A couple other things I did note that you need to take uh, note of and remind yourself of is that last time we were together, I noted that the personal pronoun, the second person plural pronoun that is used in this passage, when you see, uh, should not be just designated to the disciples of that time. We shouldn't be so restrictive in the word you there that it only means the disciples that were there with him that day and no one else at all, because that's not what he's using the word you like. He's using it in a broader context a larger context to refer to the whole of the body of Christ, if you will, all of believers. This is always the case, it seems, throughout the New Testament. I wouldn't say always. Let me back that up. There's plenty of times that it is the case that the word you, as a second person plural, is used to refer not to just the small group of disciples or even the large number of people listening to him, but a broader example of people throughout the world, throughout the history of the Christian church, like, for instance, in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, not just the ones that were listening, but to all of the church. He tells everyone in the church, you are the salt of the earth, right? You are the light of the world, not just the disciples of that time. And then even in the immediate context in Matthew 23, when he weeps over Jerusalem in verse 37 and following, Matthew 23.37, he talks about how he would love to gather them together, as the hen would gather together her chicks under his wings, but they were unwilling. And then he says in verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more. That use, talking about the leadership of Israel, the people of Israel that are going to put him to death. But then in the very same sentence, he says this, You will see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's future, folks. Because he's going to be put to death by this first you. But the you is a collective, um, forceful, collective future reference to the people of Israel who see Jesus coming. And it's the fulfillment of the Zechariah passage where they see the one whom they pierced. And they weep. And they mourn. And Jesus changes their hearts and saves them. So right in one verse, and literally in one sentence... He changes from a local you to a broader future you, referring to the people of Israel. So I don't want you to think that just because the word you is used throughout the text of Matthew 24, that it only related to those of that time, and that's all it related to. That is too strict on a prophetic text, no doubt. Now, the second thing I wanted to note, and we kind of left off with this, is that this abomination of desolation spoken of by Jesus is future from the time of Jesus Christ. We would all agree with that because Jesus says, when you see this happening, it would be future to him at least for sure, future to the disciples. But we have to ask the question, how far into the future is it? Is it only 70 AD? Is that the future he's talking about? Or is it more than that? Well, what Jesus says 
is that this abomination of desolation was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, this is so essential. As anyone knows, whenever you study prophetic literature, you cannot just isolate yourself to the New Testament text. You can't. Because you've got to understand that a lot of the things that Jesus said, a lot of the things that John said, even in the book of Revelation, are tied to Old Testament text. Even some of the imageries that are found in the Old Testament are carried over into the New Testament prophetic language. But here specifically, Jesus references something that was said by Daniel the prophet, and he makes it clear that Daniel wasn't talking about a symbol. He wasn't talking about some kind of uh, expression. He was talking about an actual event. He called it the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So he's referencing something that the disciples would have known about. But he even states in that text, and it's repeated, I believe, in the Gospel of Mark, he who hears this or whoever reads this, let him understand. Some have made that bracketed in their New Testament and have made it, like in the red letter editions, they've made it black, meaning that Jesus didn't say that. But some commentators believe, because Mark repeats it in his Gospel, that this was not something that was put in as an editor's note by Matthew or Mark, but this is what Jesus said. He said, whenever you see that abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever reads Daniel the prophet, let him understand that. Now, with that said, I wish Jesus would have given us some more information whenever he said, let us understand because we're going to see a little bit later that even Daniel says toward the latter chapter, I don't understand any of this. And so we're thankful that the prophets could write down things they didn't understand, which is another thing the New Testament even recognizes. So it's an amazing thing, isn't it? And by the way, if you've ever had an opportunity to read the book of Daniel, it is one of the most amazing prophetic books in the Bible. Uh, you have so many things going on in that book. Angels coming down and answering prayers of Daniel and being fought off by bad angels. And it's just incredible what's happening in the book of Daniel. But specifically, going back to what Jesus says, he says you need to look at the book of Daniel to know what this abomination of desolation is. Well, when you go back to Daniel, you find out it is referred to in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. So let's go back there again, and uh, we're going to try to eventually land finally and fully in Daniel chapter 12. So some of the common characteristics that you find in Daniel 8, Daniel 9, 11, and 12 about the abomination of desolation is that the daily sacrifices are stopped, all right, in all four instances that it's referred to. And these sacrifices are the tamid offerings. That's the actual Hebrew word tamid. It means daily offerings. These were the morning and evening offerings that happened every day. So this is not the Passover lamb. This is not the Day of Atonement. These are the daily sacrifices that happen on a daily basis in the nation Israel at that time. And so you see that in all four passages that these daily sacrifices are stopped. And then also, at least in reference in uh, Daniel 8, and also in reference to Daniel 9, but more specifically in chapter 11 and 12, there is some type of statue, something set up uh, that is an abomination of desolation that is set up in the temple of that time and desecrates the temple. Now, we know historically that Antiochus, that used to be called Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, did historically desecrate the temple. He set up a statue of Zeus, and he also slaughtered pigs and desecrated it by causing the priests to eat pork, which you all know is not something they would do. So the point is, is that historically, yes, Daniel chapter 8, many believe to refer to Antiochus. And also there's a portion in Daniel chapter 11 that seems also to refer to Antiochus's career. But there are things also throughout those passages that seem to launch us further than the historic event, especially chapter 12, and especially the latter portion of chapter 11, as we'll see in just a few moments. 
So if you remember, you can go back to Daniel 8 just for a moment. I just want to highlight a couple of things here. I'm not going to read all the text. We did some of that last time. But the first reference about this abomination of desolation is Daniel 8. And in verse 11, Daniel 8, 11, it says, And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. Now, as again, many believe this to be a historic reference to Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of the transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. Also in verse 13, uh, the latter part of that verse, it says, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? So in these verses, you don't have the specific word for word, the abomination of desolation, but you have a clear reference to something that's very similar. All right? But we move a little further in uh, verse 17. This needs to be noted because this is an important interpretive key. In verse 17, it says, Then he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. This is Daniel, of course, talking. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers, listen to this, to the time of the end. Now, we're going to see that again and again. And it's going to be very clear in a few moments that the time of the end is not the time in 70 A.D. This is clearly way out into the future. Now, the problem with that is this, is that almost among conservative scholarship, it is believed that this passage that I just referred to in Daniel 8 refers to Antiochus. And I would agree with that. I actually see all of that as being a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, but based on the prophetic literature here and the way that Daniel is told that these visions refer to the time of the end, what many have adopted from that is, is that this is not only a historic event, but it pictures what the final and full Antichrist will be in the future. He will be like this man, later on in fact, who is called a vile person, a very evil person Antiochus was. And so that he's really a picture or a forecast or a figure or a type of the Antichrist to come. The second reference, and by the way, we will get into this one in a little bit more detail next Lord's Day, uh, hopefully. Not Lord's Day, but Wednesday. But Daniel 9.26 says, and after the 62 weeks, we're right, dropping right into the middle of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And uh, just to reference this passage in Daniel 9.26, and after the 62 weeks... This is 62 series of sevens. Messiah will be cut off. That refers to Jesus Christ himself, the anointed one, the word for Messiah, being crucified substitutionarily, not for himself, it says. And then it says, as it changes, and the people of the prince who is to come, which refers to the attack on Jerusalem, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it will be like a flood until the end of of the war, desolations are determined. But then in verse 27, he says, Then he, and we'll talk about who the he is next time, then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven, or three and a half periods in, or three and a half years in, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice, again, the tamid, the daily offerings, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Well, again, it sounds very close to what Jesus said, but it's not word for word what Jesus said. But clearly there's a reference to the sacrifices being stopped, the tamid offerings being stopped, and there is an abomination that makes desolate here. And it occurs in the middle of a seven-year period. So our third reference is found in chapter 11, verse 30. Chapter 11, verse 30. And again, I'm dropping in the middle of the context and reading. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him. Now this is talking about, I believe, Antiochus Epiphanes. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there an abomination of desolation. Okay, now we're getting closer. You notice the wording here in the text. This man, this vile, evil leader, Antiochus, comes in and he actually defiles the sanctuary. And then it says he shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there. So he's going to set up 
something that's an abomination of desolation. And as I told you, historically, we know that was true. That did happen. He did some horrific things. Killed an awful lot of Jews, no doubt. Well, there's one last reference. Well, before I move to that one, uh, notice again at the end of verse uh, 30, or verse 31, the end of verse 31, it says, the abomination of desolation. That's the same wording that Jesus had, the abomination of desolation. Now, chapter 12, verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11, and from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up. That's identical. Identical. There shall be 1,290 days. Okay, so we have four references. They, they go from a more vague reference, but clearly referring to something that's an abomination, and the sacrifice is being stopped, to a more specific reference that clearly is the very words that Jesus would say. And I believe this is important because as we get to the end of the book of Daniel, as we'll see in just a few moments, we're not talking historically anymore. In fact, it is literally impossible to make it historical because of the references that Jesus makes here, or excuse me, that Daniel makes in this passage. So, so here's some interpretive clues that will help us out a little bit. Both Daniel 11 and 12 indicate to us that the removal of the daily sacrifice and the setting up of the abomination of desolation occur, listen to this, at the same time. In other words, whenever the sacrifices stop, it isn't like they're stopped and then way down the road somewhere there's something set up in the temple. They are happening together. The temple is desecrated by stopping the daily sacrifices and setting up this whatever it is that's an abomination, which I believe to be an idol of some sort, that makes the temple desolate. These occur at the same time, and that's an important thing also to note. There's another thing to understand. There are certain time statements throughout this passage and these passages that clearly force us into the time of the end. Like again, I told you in Daniel 8, 7, he says the vision refers to the time of the end. In Daniel 8, 19, it says, In the latter time of the indignation, for an appointed time the end shall be. And then you get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. It says, Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. You go a little further into the text in Daniel eleven thirty-five. It says this, And some of those understandings shall fall to refine them, purify them and to make them white until the time of the end. Daniel 11.40. Look at it again. Daniel 11.40. At the time of the end. At the time of the end. So what time is Daniel talking about? Well, again, conservative scholarship believes that these references here, specifically at Daniel 11.40 and Daniel 12 refer, in fact, to the last of the time. Uh, not just the last days, but the last of the last days, the time of the advent of Christ, the time of the end, when all things come to an end. And that's what is universally accepted. Now, in Daniel eleven twenty-one through 35, it talks about the exploits of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're not going to go through all of the details of that, but clearly, even with that, you have a an overlapping of what happens with Antiochus Epiphanes and it begins to go further out from him into the future to talk about what I would believe the career of the Antichrist. Let me show you what I mean. Let's pick up in verse 21. Just follow along with me and read with me. Daniel eleven twenty-one. And just to give you a heads up, verse 21 through verse 34, I believe to be specifically referring to the career of Antiochus, okay? And this is proven historically. It matches with his career and his exploits and his desire to destroy. Uh, you can find that out. In Daniel eleven twenty one. and in his place shall arise a vile person, in the place of the former king, that is, 
There will be someone who will arise who's called a vile person in verse 21, to whom they will not give honor and royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great advances or great actions or, as my translation says, great exploits. Verse 33, and those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet many days they shall fall by the sword and flame and by captivity and plundering. This is because Antiochus is coming in killing and torturing and, and taking captive. And then verse 34, now when they fall, they shall be aided by, with a little help, uh, but many shall join with them by intrigue. Now, verse 35, it seems to begin to change right here. It will definitely change in verse 36, but it begins to change right here. This is like one of those transitional sentences in verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. Now Daniel is beginning to see something a little further now into the future, that these things are going to happen. They shall fall. They will be refined. They will be purified. They will be made white, which I believe refers to the people of Israel, the Jewish people of that time. And that will happen and go on until the time of the end. So now we just launched out into the future. This is going to go on for a very long time until the time of the end. But then verse 36, things change. You say, how do we know they change? Well, the events that are recorded here in this text don't match any of the career of Antiochus Epiphanes. It just doesn't, it just doesn't match. It doesn't agree with what we know of Antiochus. And then again, considering verse 35, where it begins to talk about these things are going to continue until the time of the end, and then verse 36 picks up like this, then the king shall do according to his own will. Now you say, that doesn't make any sense, but you have to understand in prophetic literature, this happens a lot. You'll be reading along in one prophetic passage that you think is going to be occurring, like let's say in the first coming of Jesus, in the same passage, it will launch you out into the future in the very next sentence. That's one of the reasons why whenever the disciples heard what Jesus said about the temple being destroyed... They weren't thinking this is one event that's going to happen. They saw it all together because when they read the Old Testament prophets, they didn't see what we see today. They had no idea what was coming. They still, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, were asking Jesus, will you now set up the kingdom? They still didn't get it. That there were going to be at least 2,000 years, right, of the history of the church. So then verse 36, notice what it says. Then the king shall do according to his own will. This is why we call the Antichrist the willful king, the man or the king who does according to his own will. Notice what it says about him. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god and shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god, for he shall himself exalt himself above all. Now, there's no doubt that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was a man full of himself. But he also set up a statue of Zeus to be worshipped. This man's not like that. This man's going to say, I'm it. I'm the number one dude. You worship me. I'm above every other god. In the verse 37 where it says, And he shall regard neither the god of his fathers. That's not really the best translation of that because it's actually the, the godfather or the father of God, which is a reference to, it's like a shortened version of uh, the God of Abraham, Abram meaning father. It's like the shortened version of it. So what he's basically saying is this, is that he shall not regard the God of Israel. And then this other statement, nor the desire of women, some have said, well, he must be a homosexual. It's not impossible, but that's not really what that referred to. It's a Hebrew expression for the desire of women, which the desire of women was the Messiah, to be like Mary was, the blessed one who was able to give birth to the anointed one, the Messiah. And so if you read it from that context, what he's telling us is that this man will have no regard for the God of his fathers or really the God of Abraham, nor will he have a desire 
or any respect for the Messiah, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt, exalt himself above all of them. Verse 38, but in their place he shall honor the God of fortresses. That's the God of war. He pours all of his wealth into war, in the machine of war. And he says uh, he will also honor a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which many believe to be his war machine, uh, which he shall acknowledge and advance in glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. And then verse 40, look what it says. At the time of the end, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Now, Notice that phrase. That just told us where we are. Okay? We're in the time of the end. This king that rose up, that is this willful king that does according to his own will, who regards no other God and makes himself to be God, and yet honors the God of war, it is at the time of the end that the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and by the way, don't let that confuse you. Just because he did not say Abrams tanks and Apache helicopters doesn't mean that the Bible's just, this is all historic. They didn't have anything else to say. I mean, if they use bows and arrows, they're not going to say AK-47s. That wasn't the way prophetic literature spoke. He's talking about that they gather together all of those elements that are used in war, whether it be ships, horsemen, or chariots, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also go into the glorious land, which is Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown, and these shall escape out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. And again, he's using the names that are known that day, the regions that are known that day, uh, Edom and Moab refer to the Jordan area. He's not saying, he's not using the contemporary language that we use today or the contemporary names we know today. Those weren't the names it was known by. He's talking about the regions of that time that refer to the same regions of this day. And he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. I mean, Egypt stayed Egypt. Libya has stayed Libya. Persia is known as Persia by many, but we call it Iran. But nevertheless, it says he shall have power, in verse 43, he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow on his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant his tents in his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, which many believe to be the Mediterranean seas and the holy mountain of Israel and Jerusalem. And he shall come up to his end and no one will help him. In other words, he ends up getting killed. It's over with for him. There's an end for this guy. He does some horrific things, but he eventually dies. But again, I do all that to help you see how this flows because you cannot just jump into the middle of this text without seeing what's happening here. This king, the willful king in verse 36, is clearly someone that is acting at the time of the end in verse 40. And now we go a little further. In verse 12, uh, chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, notice what it says. What's the first three words? At that time. What time, Daniel? What I just read to you. All the time of the willful king and his horrendous war machine and what he does to kill and to take over and destroy. At the time of the end. Verse 40 of chapter 11. That's the time. So now we come to Daniel 12. And we're clearly in the future. You say, well, it's not clear to me yet. Well, it will be. Give me a few moments and I'll show you why. So at that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael who? Well, this is Michael the archangel. This is Michael, who's a very powerful angel who has been given charge over the protection of the people of Israel. 
He's called the great prince, it says in verse 1, who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now notice what the words are here. Please pay attention to this. And at that time, is the assumption, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? You read that in Matthew 24? Read that in maybe Mark chapter 13? Sure you have. Look at else look look what else he says. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book. Look a little further, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the resurrection. That's the final resurrection. Chapter 12, verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That refers to the reward of the saints. For those who turn many to Christ, they'll be rewarded. Look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words. That, may, that basically means put them in a box and protect them. And seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge will increase. Some believe that refers to air travel and all this kind of stuff. That really probably refers to many looking into the book of Daniel. Can you imagine just for a moment that you're getting close to the return of Christ and we're seeing some of the events forecasted in the word of God and then, and then people begin to look at the book and start reading it in light of what they're seeing. I think there's going to be a lot of knowledge increase in those days. That's, what I, that's the way I take that verse. I don't believe it refers to the Internet and, uh, and people, people flying here, there, and yonder. There's no doubt that happens, and we do have the Internet. Now we have AI. And who knows what else we'll have in a few years. In Daniel 12, 9, it says, And he said, the angel said to Daniel, Go, Daniel, for your words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Now, it took me a while to get through that, but now I want to make some points, okay, if you'll follow with me carefully. Stay awake with me if you can, because these are important. If you missed everything else, listen to this. So some of the things I think you need to understand about this text that I just read, particularly chapter 11, verse 36, all the way through the end of Daniel 12, is that six times, six times in these passages, specifically beginning with verse 34 of Daniel 11, it refers to the time of the end. The time of the end. This time, according to Daniel, includes the rise of an evil king. An evil leader who will, number one, do according to his own will. Number two, he will have no regard for the God of Israel or the Messiah Christ. Three, he will exalt himself above all gods and the true God. Four, he will speak blasphemies against the one true God. Five, he will pour out his wealth into the war machine. Six, he will conquer many countries in the Middle East. Seven, he will invade the land of Israel and set up a camp there. Literally. Eight, he will kill many in great fury and rage. That's what we know about that man who will come in the end of the age or the time of the end. And number three, not only do we know that there are six references to the end of the time or the time of the end, but also there's an evil king who arises at that time. But one other thing we know in these verses is this. This time of the end will include a terrible time of trouble unlike any time in the history of the world. He says it in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, there shall be a time of trouble. And by the way, that's the same in the Septuagint. That's the same Greek word for tribulation in Matthew 24. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation, even until that time. Now, this phrase is actually what they call a Hebrew idiom. All right? And it is a phrase that is used to make an expression clear. And the expression is basically this. This is unlike anything ever. 
It's the worst time, worst possible time. It's used that way like in Exodus chapter 9, verse 18. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause a very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been since Egypt, since the founding until now. It's used again in verse 24. So there shall be hail and fire mingled with that hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The whole point of this Hebrew idiom is it is the worst ever the worst ever they've ever experienced. Now, Jesus says these same words in Matthew 24, 21, for there shall be a great tribulation, same Greek word, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. It is so bad, according to verse 22, that unless those days were divinely shortened, no flesh would be saved. Everyone would die. Mark intensifies it some. He says, in those days there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until that time, nor ever shall be. So there's going to be a terrible time of tribulation. We could call it persecution during that time. Number four, this end of time, this time of the end, where there's terrible trouble, will be followed by the deliverance of God's people. Notice it in chapter 12 again of Daniel. And it says, verse 1, at that time, skip down a little bit, there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, who is this? Well, if you want to get really strict about it, it could be just referring to Israel or the Jewish people at that time in that hub of Jerusalem and Israel that are being attacked by the Antichrist at that time. In fact, in Revelation 12, turn to that passage just for a moment, there is a parallel passage here in Revelation 12, 3. Revelation 12, 3, I'm going to read fast, so hang on. Y'all listen quick. Revelation 12, 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadem on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of the heavens and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman and was ready to, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now this is a picture and image of Satan coming down to try to destroy Jesus Christ when he was born. Verse 5 says, she bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's referring to Christ. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. That's the ascension. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. Now we'll see that next Wednesday evening, what that is about. And a war broke out in heaven. Notice this. A war broke out in heaven. Remember Daniel 12:1 now. A war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail, nor was their place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. His angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on, the, dwell on them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. Now verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, which happens to be Israel in this text, who gave birth to the male child. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, and she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a times, which refers to a three-and-a-half-year period from the presence of the serpent, the devil. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood of the dragon, that had been spewed out of his mouth, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war 
with the rest of her offspring, which happens to be us, by the way, and other Jews who know Christ, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if you noticed in that passage, reading it that rapidly, but there was a deliverance of the people of Israel from the satanic attack. They were carried away and protected, it says. But also it may refer, and I say may because I, I don't believe we can be dogmatic as to what this deliverance refers to absolutely, but it also may refer to the Zechariah passage. And if you can turn with me, if you can hang with me for 15 20 more minutes, I'll be done with this, and we won't have to come back to it in the next 18 years. Okay, Zechariah chapter 13, marvelous passage, 13 through 14. I'm not going to read all of it, but let me just point out a few things. This is Zechariah 13, verse 8. Again, dropping right in the middle of this. Zechariah 13, 8, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die, and one-third shall be left in it. This is Zechariah 13, 8, now verse 9. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, talking about the people of Israel, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Then notice verse 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, and the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, if you stop right there, you might think, ah, 70 A.D. No. Why? Because this one's different. You read a little further, verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That didn't happen in 70 A.D. God brought the nations to destroy Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This is Jerusalem reoccupied, repopulated, and now the nations come against them. This is also in the future, by the way. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle, verse 4, and in that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, listen, I'm very simple in my eschatology. I believe every word of that. When he comes down, his feet are going to plant right on the Mount of Olives. Okay, not some ethereal, allegorical picture of something in the future. This is a real descent of Christ, I believe, to the Mount of Olives. It even says it faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. Talking about Israel, the people of Israel at that time. For the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee and as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Again, what is God doing here? Making a path of escape, delivering his people. It could be both. Uh, it even talks about in that very time, in verse 6, And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. And at the evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Now that sounds very familiar to the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 also, clearly picking up on that imagery. And in that day it shall be, in verse 8, that the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, a time of blessing and prosperity and beauty. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. This is coming, folks. This is future. This is what's going to happen. And I believe that may be a reference to the deliverance of the people of Israel. Uh, now, when you look at uh, Luke 21, uh, there's an interesting statement there that I believe does refer to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He says in Luke 21, verse 20, uh, But when you see Jerusalem by, surrounded by the armies, then know that your desolation is near. I want to add a thought here. This may be helpful. It may not. But, you know, a lot of people make this army surrounding Jerusalem the abomination of desolation with Titus coming in. But they don't have to both be the same thing, all right? Both clearly were said by the Lord, 
but both do not necessarily mean they're synonymous. What I mean by that is this, is whenever you use a synoptic Bible, you say, what is that? That's a Bible that takes all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they look at the life of Christ, and they try to line up the different differences of the Gospel records. And I'll give you an example of it. And this is not one you'll find in the text, but here's an example of what it would look like. If it says that Jesus went out to get a colt, a donkey, all right? And then it says, and the disciple put a blanket on the back of it. And that says that in Matthew, right? And then you go to Mark, and it says Jesus went out to get a donkey. You know it's the same narrative. You know it's the same situation. But it says he also had a water bag on the side. What does that mean? The water bag is the blanket? And the blanket is the water bag? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is this, is that when Jesus sent out to get the donkey, there was a blanket put on it and a water bag. That's what it means. Each writer is addressing it from a different perspective and pointing out a specific thing for the emphasis of the text. When you come to Matthew 24, you have the exact same thing. You have in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Luke 21 doesn't say that. Luke 21 says, and when you see the Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you know that its desolation is near. And then it has almost word for word the same response. And it's not saying that the abomination of desolation is the Jerusalem army surrounding. What it is saying is that Jesus said this. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet and you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, get out of Dodge. That's what it's saying. And so Luke picks up on the emphasis of the army surrounding Jerusalem. Matthew picks up on the abomination of desolation, reference to the book of Daniel. Luke doesn't even talk about Daniel at all. We know that this passage in Luke 21 is different from the Zechariah passage because in Luke 21 it says in verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations. That's not what happens in Zechariah chapter 14. Instead of them being carried away to the nations, God comes and destroys the nations. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. So, <laughs> well, I don't think you guys want to stay here till nine, so we're going to have to probably shut it down. Yeah, <laughs> you'll stay here till nine. Yeah, let me let me take five more minutes, and I'm going to finish up here because I'm not going to better cover all of this. There's so much I'd love to cover. There's one other thing I believe this deliverance of the people of God in Daniel 12 could be. Not only the deliverance of the people of Israel from the ongoing and mounting attack of the nations coming against Jerusalem, or even just the deliverance of the people of Israel from the satanic attack that comes against him with the armies and evil people and Antichrist, but it could be a very, very simple reference to the future deliverance of all of God's people. In other words, all those that are found written in the book, it says in Daniel, does it not? All those found written in the book, which is the book of life, those that are saved. So this could be referring to the general universal deliverance of the people, people of God via the rapture. And I'm not talking about pre-tribulational rapture. I'm talking about post-tribulational. You're after the tribulation. You're actually going through the dark persecution and then you're delivered before the wrath of God, not before the tribulation of Antichrist, but before the wrath of God. You remember in Matthew 24, 22, it says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. How are they shortened? They're shortened by the very next event. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus shows up and he gathers together his elect from the four winds. He stops all of the believers from being put to death by showing up. That's referred to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A couple other quick things as I close. This time of terrible trouble will be followed by the deliverance of God's people and the resurrection of the dead. I'll close with that tonight and we'll get into the abomination of desolation next time in um, Daniel 12 and go from there because that'll be a good stopping point. 
And this is where I was trying to get. This is where I'm going with this, okay? Just so you understand that we don't get so lost by looking at all the bark on the trees that we miss the forest for a few moments. My point is, is that this abomination of desolation is a future event that Daniel refers to that is at the time of the end. Over and over and over he says that. He puts it in the context of a worldwide cataclysmic troubling event of persecution but the most important thing that is the most important time statement of the entire passage is that this is the time of the resurrection. He says it. He says in chapter 12, if you're still there in Daniel, Daniel 12, he says in many of those, this is verse 2, and at that time many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now you could say, you could probably argue, if it only said some to everlasting life, you could say, well, that may refer to the ones that were resurrected at the time of Jesus' resurrection. Because some came out of the graves that day. You remember that? They walked around Jerusalem. The problem is, is this text not only talks about the resurrection unto eternal life and everlasting life, but it talks about the resurrection of those to shame and everlasting contempt. These are lost people. And folks, there's only one resurrection of the lost. It's found in Revelation 20. Great white throne judgment. That's it. Every single person in all of humanity who has rejected Jesus Christ will be resurrected. And their bodies will be made into a body that can endure hell forever. This is a classic Old Testament reference to the future resurrection. And that's the way they often talked about it. They didn't talk about it like you and I talk about it. Like Jesus is the first fruits, and then after him, those that are following him, and so forth like that, where you have all these different layers of resurrections. They saw it as the resurrection and the life, the resurrection and the death. In fact, you have Jesus himself saying those very words in John 5, 28. Listen to this. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This is what Daniel is talking about. It's the same exact thing. So my point is, is that in the context of Daniel chapter 12, he actually talks about this abomination of desolation using the very exact words, the abomination of desolation. He talks about the cessation of the sacrifices in Daniel 12. He references the same event of the Antichrist in Daniel 11 doing the same thing. It's also referenced in the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. But clearly what Daniel is doing is taking this event and not making it something that occurred in 70 A.D., but he's making it something that will occur into the future at the very time whenever the resurrection occurs. So that's why I believe that when Jesus said these words in the passage, that he wasn't talking about just the events of 70 A.D. Clearly he referenced that. There's no doubt about that. Luke 21 makes that very clear. But that wasn't all he was talking about. When he told those disciples, this will be that which Daniel talked about. Go back and read Daniel to understand, he says. Clearly what he says in Daniel 11 and 12 refer to this event, which is in the time of the end and the time of the resurrection. So one thing I close with is this. If you go back and have some time, read Daniel 10, 11, and 12, and you'll note in that text a number of times Daniel is told this, he would not fully understand this until the time of the end. So my point is by saying that is Daniel didn't get all of it. We're not going to get all of it, okay? We're going to get bits and pieces of it. We're going to try to put it together the best we can. That's my attempt at the future abomination of desolation and just be humble enough to recognize that even though our view, uh, we try to hold it, we try to make sure it's right and correct, but we need to hold it humbly, knowing that we don't have all the information, 
Daniel didn't have all the information. The angels told him that. So we need to keep that in perspective. Amen? But anyway, let's take a moment and close in prayer. Thank you for your patience. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We ask you, Lord God, that you would help us just to understand the text, uh, to keep it true to your word. Lord, we, we don't desire to be in error with anything. We desire to do everything we can to properly and accurately handle your word. Uh, Lord, these things that we read about in Daniel, these things that we read about in the New Testament that are coming on this world are horrific in nature. Your judgments are clear. Your judgments are right. But, Lord, we do pray. We have so many people that we know personally that are lost that without Christ would experience the full fury of all of these things we've talked about. Lord, I pray that you would save them, open their hearts to the truth, help them, Lord, to submit to Jesus Christ, to trust him as Savior and Lord, help us to be the example of the gospel, living worthy of that gospel in front of them. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.